Hey there, you are watching School Psych Podcast. Um, we're just getting out of NASP time with the convention. So um, every, anybody who attended that, I hope you had a great time. Um, right now we've got Eric subbing in for us for Rebecca and he attended the conference and he's gonna, when, um, when he introduces himself, he's gonna give us a little bit of a drive-by of um, some of the things that he saw. So I'm excited to hear about that. He posted a couple of videos and did some live streaming for us while he was there. He was our little NASP correspondent. He did an awesome job, so thank you, Eric. Um, um, but I'm, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland. I'm going to tell you guys how to participate tonight. Um, the best way is through YouTube. Um, if you're signed in with your Google or YouTube account, um, there should be a chat box right next to the video um, where you can uh, type in questions and comments as we go. So that's the best way. You can also use the hashtag psych podcast. I'm going to try and keep an eye out for that. Um, or you could also comment on the Facebook page. We should get some notifications in that event page for, um, for tonight's broadcast. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Eric. Eric? All right. Um, thanks, Rachel. My name is Eric Elias, and I'm a school psychologist in central Connecticut. And as Rachel mentioned, I just returned from the NASP convention in Chicago. And it was the highest attended convention that we've had so far. So over 6,500 school psychologists in one place. It was uh, nerdy fun at its best. <laughs> we, uh, we had a wonderful time. And um, some of the highlights, that things that I found just incredible uh, takeaways were that there was a tremendous amount of uh, information, uh, research, and lectures regarding uh, behavior supports, regarding trauma-informed supports, and regarding um, helping, assisting students with um, strategies such as self-regulation. So tonight's podcast, I think, will be um, particularly important to, to some of the things we um, talked about at NASP. Um, also, a lot of information regarding uh, some of the changes in cognitive theory. So some researchers were there, um, CHC theory refinement, which I thought was really interesting. A lot of influences from the neuropsych fields, which is very interesting, and hundreds of research posters uh, were presented. So it was fantastic and inspiring just to see people, um, school psych practitioners doing research to practice. So uh, really an exciting week, and I think um, tonight's podcast will be a wonderful um, sort of conclusion to some of the things in terms of learning about self-regulation. So I'm going to turn it over to Anna. Thank you, Eric. We're all very envious of your experience over the past week. We're grateful for you to share what you've shared. Um, one day we'll nerd out along with you. That's the dream. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm school psych in New York State. Um, I'm the only one of the group of us who has the next week off. A very great week. So shout out to anyone out there who has the same week off. Um, nothing to be sacrificing around these two times. So we get this week now, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. Um, so I have the pleasure of introducing our guest tonight, Dr. Richard M. Cash, who's an award-winning author and educator who's worked in the field of education for over 25 years. His range of experience includes teaching in coordination and programming with the state administration. Currently, he's an internationally recognized education consultant. Um, his consulting work has taken him throughout the United States into Canada, Czech Republic, China, England, Indonesia, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, Mexico, Poland, Karachi, Qatar, Spain, South Korea, Turkey. Richard received his doctoral in education leadership and a master's degree in curriculum and instruction from the University of St. Thomas, Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
Twin Cities, along with his bachelor's degree in education from the University of Minnesota. Richard holds a bachelor's degree in theater from the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. For over 10 years, he's coordinated a children's theater program in Minnesota and co-authored the award, three award-winning plays, sorry, four award-winning plays. <laughs> um, he was a recipient of a National Association for Gifted Children's Early Leader Award in 2011, recognized his leadership programming for gifted children. And Richard's also named the Friends of the Gifted in 2016 by Minnesota Educators of the Gifted and Talented, which we've had some gifted talks over the years so that you should about that. His areas of expertise in educational programming, um, rigorous and challenging curriculum design, differentiated instruction, 21st century skills, brain compatible classrooms, gifted and talented education, and self-regulated learning. Dr. Cash is the author of Advanced Differentiation. Thinking and Learning for the 21st Century, a finalist for the Association of Educational Publishing Distinguished Achievement Award, Self-Regulation in the Classroom, Helping Students Learn to Learn, and co-author of Differentiation for Gifted Learners Going Beyond the Basics. He's also winner of the Legacy Book Award for Outstanding Educators Publication. Thank you, Dr. Cash, for joining us tonight. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Hi, I, I feel a little bit of under-credentialed with all of you school psychs here. Not at all. You're the only doctor in this chat. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, it's a total, it's, you know, I don't want to tell people that I'm a doctor in this kind of a talk because uh, they'll think that I can psychoanalyze them or something. Uh, so my, my focus, my focus on self-regulation comes out of all my years as a teacher. Um, so I'm, I'm going to approach it a little bit differently than maybe a school psych would, but give ideas of what a school psych could do to support teachers in their classrooms to help kids become regulated. Oh, so, okay. So do you guys just want me to like go on and talk? I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I think that um, yeah. we'll, we'll jump in with like questions and comments um, okay. as they come from our audience and from us, but I'm really excited. I know that Rebecca okay. was um, lucky enough to see you present and she came back from your presentation and just raves to us all. So we're all kind of very excited for this. <laughs> okay, all right, great. Yeah, yeah. well, actually, actually uh, I'm gonna be doing a, a, a similar presentation workshop uh, in the Boston area. So just go to Learning and the Brain's website. So it's Learning in the Brain com I think it is and you can see my workshops going to be listed there in the Boston area uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a little switch over here so I'm going to switch my screen to uh, a little PowerPoint here there we go so is that looking good you can yes I can't see okay good yeah so I, I'm just going to kind of walk you through um, what I learned about self-regulation um, over my 30 years in the classroom and working with teachers. Um, I, I, I this idea of self-regulation for me came up, um, I'm gonna stop sharing and <clears throat> go back to the picture here. Um, the, I, the ideas of self-regulation came up to me as <clears throat> my first experience working with gifted kids and how gifted kids as bright as they are, didn't have a lot of, and I don't want to say social skills, because it's really not social skills. It was just like how to deal with failure, how to deal with not getting the answer first or right, uh, just a lot of different 
uh, issues that they had with each other. And so I started looking into this deeper than the social and emotional effects on kids beyond them being gifted. What were the things that they were missing? And I kind of stumbled across this idea of self-regulation and started really reading up on it. And it's been in the field of psychology for about 50 years. And it actually started off with uh, people who were drug abusers. Um, and then they started transferring the research into adolescents, which I think that's very interesting. It went from drug abusers to adolescents. Um, this kind of quirky yeah. nature of that, <laughs> that, that, uh, that process. And uh, as I continued to work on further in studying self-regulation, then I started working in schools of high poverty. And there it really reared its ugly head as well. And I'm not trying to shame and blame anybody here, but what I found, especially with kids living in poverty, is they didn't know how to go to school. Mm. Um, you know, middle-class kids, that's kind of an expectation. That is the history. That's what they've been used to for gener generations and generations. But kids in poverty, that is sometimes a place that they go to get two meals a day. And not necessarily where it's the expect expectation you go to school to learn. So there was this. Uh, so as I read through and studied more on self-regulation, I realized that a lot of the issues that we have in classrooms today are because of this idea that kids are not self-regulated. And um, you know, before we even get into studying differentiation and what what are the things that we do to differentiate in the classroom, we have to understand that you no matter how great of a teacher you are, if the kids are not regulated, they're not going to be able to make good choices in the classroom. So that's where my study came from. So let me share with you now my little slideshow here. Um, there we go. Okay. Is it is it up? Can you see it? No, not seeing it. Not yet. Okay. I maybe have to do something again. And just so everybody knows, um, the slideshow is posted in the comment section of the YouTube video um, and in the Facebook event. So if you guys want access to that, feel free. <laughs> Let's try this again. Here, I'm going to open it up. I'm wondering if my <clears throat> sharing isn't, isn't working here. Hmm. Um, tires. And you're using oh, that? I, I must not be the lead person. Wait, here hmm. we go. Share. No, I'm getting Rachel. Okay. So if Let's you tapped over to, there you go. There you go. There we go. Okay. okay. Technology. Okay. So um, let, let's, okay. First, I have to get the spiel out of the way. I'm a shameless, shameless self-promoter. Absolutely shameless. Uh, but I wrote this book here called Self-Regulation in the Classroom, and it's from my publisher. Uh, it's available at freespirit.com. And if you listen all the way to the end, I'm going to give you a little code that will get you 25% off plus free shipping. So you have to wait the end for that. Um, so what I did is I started studying this idea and then how it impacts uh, teachers and how it impacts kids in the classroom. So first and foremost, I want to explain what is self-regulation. In the classroom, it's called self-regulation for learning. And to be a self-regulated learner, you have to be able to balance what I call the ABCs, affect, behavior, and cognition. And as psychologists, you know this, that 
how a kid feels about a situation is going to determine the focus of their attention. So if a kid doesn't feel good right away at the beginning of, of the day, at the beginning of the moment of walking into that classroom, you've lost the battle. So that, that idea that kids do have to feel good about being in school. They have to feel good about the location that, that where they sit and what the course is and who the teacher is. They've got to feel good about that or they're going to pay attention to their survival needs. They're going to downshift. Mm -hmm. uh, the second uh, aspect is behavior, and behavior is all of that stuff that we talk about in the classroom of behavior. One of the things that I'm concerned when I hear about a lot of behavioral management systems is that the behavioral management systems sometimes do not take into account the affect side, nor do they take in count in, into account the cognition side. If you're only going to deal with one dimension of this who we are as human beings, you might change the behavior, but you're not going to change the person. And look at how many people reoffend. Those people have had behavioral management systems put on them, but they still fall back into those bad patterns. And as you know, that it takes five positives to outweigh one negative. And the brain is much more tuned into the negatives than it is to anything positive. So when behaviors are off, that to me is a symptom. And what we need to do is stop looking at the behavior as the source. The behavior is a readout of the symptom. What, or that's the behavior is the symptom, but we have to figure out where is the source? What is the source that is causing that behavior to happen? More than likely, it's going to be the affect. The kid just does not feel good about being there. Then there's cognition, and cognition has three tiers to it. That's metacognition, you know, that whole thinking about our own thinking, the reflective process and all that. Then there's infracognition, and I titled that. That's the, the structures of thinking, such as creative thinking, critical thinking, problem-solving, decision-making. All those things are what are called infracognition. And then the highest level of cognition is what is called metaphysical cognition. And that's that esoteric, theater, uh, theoretical, philosophical, philosophical ranges of thinking. Um, here is where it, where you will actually delineate gifted from non-gifted kids, because gifted kids, truly gifted kids, and I'm not just talking academically talented kids or kids that are above average, but truly gifted individuals, IQs greater than 130 or even higher, 145 and stuff those kids will enter metaphysical cognition much sooner. Metaphysical cognition requires a much greater degree of sophistication in the prefrontal cortex. So that level of reasoning and that level of abstraction, uh, gifted kids get there sooner. And this is where you're really going to see those kids struggle then with what's called asynchrony. And asynchrony is that imbalance between that metaphysical cognition. I'm thinking about these world issues such as what happens when we die and they are still six or seven years old affectively and they just don't know how to deal with it. Um, you know, I know that a lot there was there's uh, conversation going on all around us, but really heavily in the GT world about what happened on Valentine's Day in Florida and my thoughts and prayers go out to those families as well. But the kids are being affected 
by this and they don't know how to deal with it emotionally. Mm-hmm. They don't, they, they, they get the evil, but they don't understand how to deal with that. So these three have to balance. They have to work in tandem. One can't be off because it's going to pull the other two off with it. So I call it the ABCs, always getting kids to process how you feeling, what you doing, what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. How you feeling? What are you doing? What are you thinking? Uh, so that that's what is self-regulation is the ability to balance and manage your ABCs, the affect, behavior, and cognition. All right. So, yeah, is there a question? Oh, okay. Uh, so there are four stages actually in the process of developing self-regulation. And if you've ever heard of the GRR, the gradual release of responsibility, mm-hmm. that's all based on work coming out of self-regulation. How you have to see it modeled for you, then you copy and do it just the exact way it was given to you, and then you practice it and ultimately refine it, and then you ultimately become independent with it. Yes, you can consider this kind of the transitions through school, you know, primary to uh, intermediate to middle school to high school. Uh, however, even adults will be going through this process as well, these four stages. Um, so we are always reverting back to you got to see it happen. You got to practice it just that way. Then you start to make it your own and then ultimately you become independent with that. Well, so what, what I've got for you here in the slides, and it's spelled out in greater detail in the book, are just different things that you would work with kids in the classroom or kids in, in talk groups about the balancing of the affect, behavior, and cognition within each of those stages. So you see there are some ideas that, that help kids to become responsible for their own learning, to become responsible in being able to balance their ABCs. So you see there uh, just different ideas about affect, like helping them develop a self-talk, uh, that, that instructional strategies being very clear in modeling those and very focused on what they are and to the cognitive of actually teaching kids how to think, not what to think. Um, so our kids are so um, distracted and instantly gratified that they're not willing to work things. Teach them to do that. Um, along with the four stages, then let's put this down into the classroom. There are four phases in the learning process. So you have the first phase is that you have to feel good about yourself. You have to feel confident, both self-efficacious as well as have a good self-belief. Be able to then move to the next stage, which is about setting and managing goals. Do kids even know how to set a goal? Not very likely. And oftentimes when we do have kids set goals, we set unrealistic goals for them, like a year-long goal in first grade. That's not going to happen. First graders can't set a year-long goal. I mean, just think about how many of us, it's now, uh, well, now middle of February, how many of us are still holding to our New Year's resolutions? Which goals? Those things go away by the 15th of January. So we can't expect kids to hold on to long-term goals. So really, how do you set those goals that are kind of day-to-day, moment-to-moment kind of goals down into monitoring and adjusting because we got to teach kids that, yeah, you can set a goal, but maybe you set the goal too low. Maybe you set it too high. How do you monitor that and how do you adjust for those, those needs? 
And then the final phase is then reviewing and reflecting because that review and reflect actually is far more important than we understand because we learn more from the review of the experience, the reflection on the experience than we do from the experience itself. So we've got to have kids take that moment and it doesn't take very long, take that moment to say, how was I feeling during doing this? What was I doing that worked or didn't work? What, what were the thinking tools that I was using? Now, what am I going to plan to do next time? So that leads you right back into that phase uh, of fostering their confidence. So it's a cycle. It's constantly going around and around and around. So then what I did is I said, okay, well, what we want to do then is within each one of those four cycles, those four steps within the phases within the cycle, there are certain aspects that we want to consider in the classroom uh, that can help kids. So each one of the next coming slides are, I'm not gonna read the slides to you because I'm hoping you all can read. Uh, the, the slides are there to show you what are the different things that need to happen in each one of those phases in the learning process. So, you know, how do you break out the affect by creating this safe and welcoming environment, setting good standards of behavior and scholarly expectations in the classroom, and then that, again, that developmental cognition process. So setting the, the confidence stage, this is phase two now where you're preparing kids to do well. So how do you help them manage stress? How do you help them deal with boredom? And the reason I put boredom in, in quotation marks there um, is because boredom, and write this down, Richard Cash 2018, boredom is a self-induced state. We create our own boredom. Boredom is a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a feeling. It's created based on the stimuli that goes into our brain and how we process that stimuli. And boredom is relative. Boredom is relative to the individual. Something that's boring to me, like possibly going into a calculus class, would be terribly boring to me. But my brother, who is a, a high school math teacher, absolutely falls in love with all that stuff. So boredom is a self-induced state. So what we have to do is we have to teach kids how to take charge of that boredom. And in my book, I've got different strategies about how to help kids deal with that idea of boredom. Also distraction, it's a huge problem in schools today because their life is so highly distractible. Uh, again, in the behavioral, different learning aspects and cognition, now you're starting to move up the chain and how do you start using more of those higher order thinking tools, creativity and so forth. The third phase then is about monitoring yourself. Um, again, it's about maintaining your own confidence, finding success when you find you know, when you can find even small successes, um, you know, keeping the, the environment safe from uh, bullying, especially for intellectual taking. Um, my work mostly has been in the field of gifted and I know gifted kids are, they are so scared of making a mistake because they've got that fixed mindset that they're only gifted because they've always been right. Um, where learning really is about making mistakes. Uh, again, you see different kinds of, of uh, behavioral aspects there. Note that, notice the teacher is now moving away from being in control. Uh, we're wanting kids to take more of the responsibility of their learning process. Then phase four is the reflection phase. 
Uh, and that is, as you see, it's just a lot of assessments and ass assessing your feelings, assessing your study habits and so forth, and then uh, thinking through and forecasting uh, for the future, setting those plans for the future. So uh, in my book, I've got all of these, the four phases and the four stages cross matrix so that you could decide what am I going to do with a child who might be at stage one needing the modeling and they need help in the building confidence stage. They need help in this, uh, the goal setting stage. So I actually have a cross matrix that shares uh, the cross between the four phases and the four stages. Oh, and here's the here's the uh, special offer page. I'll leave that up there for a minute and uh, kind of turn it back to you guys to uh, throw me any questions you may have. Very cool. Um, so I, as I'm listening to this, I think that um, well, I'm going to click and make sure that your offer page stays up while I'm talking. Um, yeah. So with this model, I mean, it seems very conducive to some of, you know, individual counseling that school psychologists might do or group counseling that we might do. How do you envision who is implementing um, this model? Can it be teachers as well? Um, how how does this tip? How, who is supporting these kids and, and how is that looking yeah. in the school? Um, well, because I'm not a school psychologist and my field is not psychology, I'm just a, kind of a, a armchair psychologist. Um, I wrote it for teachers. However, I've had my friends who are psychologists, both licensed psychologists outside of schools and school psychologists, uh, review it, and they found that there was a lot of stuff that they could use. And, and I've been in enough therapy to uh, know that these things come out of psychology, I mean, because my therapist uses them on me. So uh, there are things that, that are... Yes, you guys probably know these things, but I think it's having this framework of how then it applies back in the classroom. Um, and, and so, yes, this could be in tandem with a classroom teacher. It could be a classroom teacher alone. It is designed to be a either a whole school or district-wide implementation kind of deal. That's the very last chapter in the book, but it's, it's really written for a classroom teacher to go through there and say, okay, here I'm at this phase. I know my kids are at this stage. These are the tools that I may need to use uh, during those periods. I'm going to stop sharing here and come back. There we go. Comment online too. I hope you guys can hear me okay. Yeah. Yeah. Says, yeah. My philosophy of education teacher would say schools in charge of the cognitive, effective, and psychomotor abilities. So what we... Lost her. Sorry, Anna, you were muted for just a second. Do you want to reread yeah. that? Oh, oh reread. Sure. Sorry, I, I have cats in, in the way who just um, went on my mm -hmm. screen and it's no longer there. So, right. So I, um, I just saw I just saw this the yeah the uh, the, the statement there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's very much in line with the ABCs. I just call it ABC to keep it fresh in people's minds so that's very easy to say affect behavior cognition very simply and and we have um abcs in, in school psychology antecedent behavior and consequence so there's a lot of oh, ABCs. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah what but i also like about that um is it it demonstrates the um, interconnectedness between affect thoughts or cognition and behavior and that really aligns very uh, closely with cognitive behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
exactly yep. our approach to supporting kids is helping them process those thoughts and feelings that lead to yep. uh, negative thoughts negative feelings and, and negative behavior outcomes yeah uh, again why i wrote this is because a lot of times teachers will send the kid out to the school psychologist or to the social worker or somebody else to deal with the the human aspect of of them uh the affect part to them but teachers got to understand they're on the front line of that affect they're there instantly for that that affect side they can't wait for the social worker or the school psychologist to come in and rescue they have to be able to interact with that all the time uh and and i give people just enough information in the book to be you know, quote unquote, dangerous, but get a, a good theoretical understanding as to why this stuff is really important. I think that um, it's especially important. I know that, you know, there's lots of conversations going on now in, in light of um, school shootings. And, and that's kind of a hot topic now with Florida. Mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned before. And so I think that everyone's coming to realize that, yes, this can't just come from the school psychologist when we have time to get in there. It can't just come from the counselor. It needs to be kind of right. something that's embedded in the classroom right. all the time from the teachers. And the teachers are the best ones to do that and to foster those relationships. And so right. I think, you know, yeah, it's important. And and I, kind of, I just saw somebody flash a question up or a statement up there. Uh, yeah, we can't wait till it becomes a crisis. And um, it has to be something that has to be done, dealt with every single day. Uh, and the the amount of information that's coming at kids now is is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, and how I was having uh, lunch yesterday with my goddaughter. She's 11. And she was telling me about their lockdown procedures in her elementary school. And she's in fifth grade. And I literally welled up with tears and was so angry. I said, why is an 11 year old telling me about lockdowns? Why, why is a child talking about lockdowns? That just hurts me to my heart that we're, kids are living, I mean, yeah, when I grew up, I grew up in the 60s uh, in New Mexico and you know we had nuclear war or nuclear bomb uh, drills where we went under our desk it was, if there's a nuclear bomb, going under your desk is not going to protect you. Right. But it wasn't, it wasn't as unknown as this now. Yeah. Uh, just the unknowing of it where, you know, if there was going to be a nuclear disaster, we got warning, you know, but there's no warning for this now. There, however, we've got to watch for those signs. And how, do, how does a teacher respond to that? getting kids to feel good about themselves. It's not, you know, stickers and cookies kind of feel good. It's really about how do you have your own sense of self-belief and your own sense of self-efficacy and self-power. Um, that's the other thing is that kids have got to learn how to take their powers back mm -hmm. rather than just constantly giving them away. So, um, yeah, that, that this, this, it, I've been studying this for about 15 years now, and now it's just, the unfortunate thing, and I have to kind of put this out there, um, Carol Dweck is much, much smarter than me. Angela Duckworth, much, much smarter than me. However, those things became psychopop. They, they, mindset and grit became, which are subsets of something. 
education, cherry pick the ideas. And unfortunately, those things aren't the whole picture. They're just one part of it. Carol Dweck is an early researcher in the field of self-regulation. In fact, her name is all over all these studies back in the, the early 80s, late 70s. Uh, so she's been doing it for a long time. So unfortunately, our pop culture picks up things quickly and we jump on a bandwagon. We jump on the, oh, we're going to teach everybody about mindset or we're going to teach everybody about mindfulness or, you know, we're going to use the Goldie Hawn material, which has a little research behind it. Um, and they're not doing it really with fidelity. I think what you have to understand is the deep-seated nature of self-regulation and how it is so interconnected, all three of them. Um, that that's that's what we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That Hans material doesn't have any. I mean, you look at the back of the. Just go to the references. There are no. There are no research studies cited on on those materials. Nice ideas, but, but not. not really oh, wow. I did not know that existed. I thought that was sarcasm. Oh, no, 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 no. The Han Foundation actually came up with this and it's a series of like six or so uh, uh, lessons uh, that a teacher does to the kids for like 10 or 15 minutes uh, during, during a class period, um, but there's no interaction with it. There's no interconnectedness to the content that's being delivered. And that again is why I wrote, shameless self-promotion plug, why I wrote this book is because I, I want people to interconnect this to what's happening in the classroom. It, you cannot have a standalone, okay, now we're gonna do self-regulation. Now we're gonna do mindset. Just like you say, now we're gonna do math. No, it has to be interactive, interconnected with all of the learning process in the classroom. Yeah, you're you're speaking my language um, when when you're talking about kind of jumping on the bandwagon because I, I see that so much in education and it really worries me because um, I see a lot of times what's ever hot on Twitter for teachers or whatever you know the principal whatever book they've picked up at this point in the reading and that's the buzzword in the book and they're just kind of going with it before we know you know what's what's behind it and what's the research and um and yeah. how to do it well and we just kind of yeah. end up doing a whole bunch of different things maybe not so well um right yeah it, part of part of it is that the way education is now because of testing and the threats that are being handed down through policy and and so forth is that we're always looking for the magic potion oh if we just differentiate all of our problems go away or if we just have mind, uh, mindfulness, all of our problems go away. Or if we just put yoga balls in the classroom, all of our problems go away. And that's not the truth. The truth is we, that education is a very complicated, complex process, but we don't know a lot about what's going on in the brain. So, uh, oh, and yes, by the way, no more slides. Um, I keep seeing this thing come up. Slides? No, no more slides. The last slide again. But so we're I'm totally ADHD. So I was afraid to see all those little bubbles because I that distracts me. 
<laughs> for those of you watching, yeah, we have a little sidebar chat, and sometimes our guests get kind of inundated by our little chit chat. That okay, so um, so there's there's so many ideas and thoughts. I guess um, Dr. Cash, I would love for you to give us a few just tips for psychologists who are working with teachers who have struggling students in their classroom. You know, should we describe the ABC model to them and kind of get them to think about their, their students' feelings and all that stuff? Or what would you suggest? Yeah, yes. And um, what I would I would suggest is that have the psychologists actually sit down with teams of teachers and say, okay, here are these four stages, or this is what self-regulation is. Just use those first several slides. Here's what self-regulation is, ABC. Here's how it develops in these four phase at these four stages and then think about your classroom in this four phases and that at each phase you're going to have to use different tools you can't use the same tools in phase one that you use in phase three because phase three you're already in the work process so it's that first building their confidence then setting goals then managing goals and then reviewing it so it's that again broken out in my book what i share is all kinds of different strategies to use throughout the phases and stages. So I would suggest that, that a psychologist talk to the teachers about the sheer importance of rather than looking at a symptom, let's start looking for the source. And I would dare to say that the source is going to be the affect, that if a kid doesn't feel good about it, they're not gonna pay attention, their behavior is gonna be off, they're thinking bad things about themselves or they're, they just don't know how to plan and so forth. So I think it, it is really trying to put those three pieces together. Well, and I think that uh, cognition piece really fits al along with executive skills too, that ability yes. to self-regulate is a huge right. executive skill and to plan and be engaged. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Right. And, and when you think about it, you know, little kids, because executive functionings happen up here in the prefrontal cortex, their their prefrontal cortex isn't well developed yet. Right. And the the development of the prefrontal cortex, because it is such a new part to our brain, my understanding is that it takes a very long time for it to develop. And in fact, it's not completely developed until about 28 years old. So when we say adolescents make stupid decisions or do crazy things or are daredevils well of course they are because they that part's not been developed well enough and it's at a critical developmental stage during adolescence so we've got to pay attention to those things and but we can't just pay attention to behavior we got to think about all three of those things in combined very true very true I wonder about um, right going right along with the trends, and I totally agree with you. And I think we do the same thing with um, uh, curriculum as well, with mm -hmm. academics. You know, the new yep. reading bandwagon, the new reading trend, the new pop, whatever it is. Right. Um, I'm wondering about uh, a lot of these fun activities that are entering the classroom, the go noodle kinds of things, the brain breaks. Um, what are your thoughts about integrating those? Well, you know. I've seen those because I, 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 a lot of my consulting takes me into classrooms. In fact, most of my consulting is actually in classrooms working with teachers. And when they get so bound to the technologies, I'm, I'm nervous by that. 
because mm. the go noodles and those, you know, that, that brain break stuff, as delightful it is, as it is, what's your evidence to prove that it's worth it? What's your evidence to prove that all of this money that you're paying for these programs and all this technology is actually benefiting student achievement? Um, so I, I, you don't need a computer to do brain breaks. You can do very simple things of just keeping in mind the 10 to two, that for every 10 minutes of instruction, didactic instruction, that you gotta give the brain about two minutes to do something else, kind of shift itself. Um, so some of these gimmicks that they're using are powerhouse pr purchases for Pearson and Scholastic and, you know, somebody's making a lot of money off of it. And I'm not seeing any evidence to prove that that stuff works, that it actually has a benefit for the cost. And schools don't have a lot of money just laying around. And, and some of this stuff can just be done with just what I call GT, not gifted and talented, but great teaching. Mm -hmm. You know, a good teacher doesn't need all the technology, doesn't need all the bells and whistles. We throw the bells and whistles in there to say we're heavy, you know, we're a tech school district. Well, what does that really mean? Uh, and it, it, we're taking the human factor out of this when we do those kind of kitschy little things like with the the go, go doodle doodle or whatever it's called you know it's just stuff that that why why are we having kids take a moment just to sit and look each other in the eye and have a have a brief conversation mm. why are we doing things like that you know we don't need to pay technology to do that stuff so i've got an opinion on it yeah <laughs> Well, and those are things that build attachments, right? Which is really crucial to relationships right. and, you know, yeah. Right, right. And I, you know, technology is marvelous and wonderful as it is. It's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. It really can enrich our lives, but it's also going to make it much more complicated. I just look at us. We're trying to have a conversation, but little technical issues get in the way and it distracts us. Sure. And the, the internet and good websites are designed that way to distract to make you not pay attention to stuff, to be very brief and short. Uh, just, you know, I mean, now you can't, if I watch anything on the computer, it has to be very short outside of, say, my Netflix shows. Uh, but those two, you know, are designed to readjust the brain every couple of minutes. So uh, those things, you know, again, the technologies as great they are, I think they're leading us down a very dangerous path of the the uh, inability to actually build those bonds, like you said, have those human interactions. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that um, so many of us are, it's just the norm now to be addicted to your phone. And when you have some downtime in the doctor's office or, yeah. you know, waiting in line for something, you just pop out your phone and you don't go through that, you know, that talking with somebody next to you or you don't um, have kind of an internal monologue of what you're going to do later in your day or think out a scenario. You're just, you know, you're browsing Facebook, you're checking the news, you're, and it's just right. a lot. And, and it's, and it's a way for us to avoid those conversations, a way for us to avoid others. Um, I caught myself doing it in my own building here. I live in a condominium and I'm on the 12th floor. And I get in the elevator and instantly I open up my phone, even though there's somebody on the elevator with me, I don't take the moment to say, oh, good morning or hi, Sarah, good to see you again. You know, 
that we we cocoon ourselves and we have these uh, these people that are not real. You know, you can make yourself look as glamorous and you can Photoshop yourself to the nth degree to make yourself not even human anymore, um, which is very, very frightening to me. Yeah. Yeah. We had a comment too that I want to um, read out before we kind of wrap up, but um, Adina had mentioned, who's uh, one of our viewers, that she thinks that um, some of these, you know, brain breaks and whatnot give the teachers a break, not the kiddos. <laughs> Sometimes it's the teachers that are like, okay, okay. go. That's so true. I want to make one more comment. I um, There's a community screening where I live, um, the film Screenagers. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. But it was just, it was so interesting, you know, hearing about kids and how many, how much time they spend on screens and how strong the drive is to get smartphones in the middle school age, you know, and how much time they spend on technology and need it and need positive feedback, especially for the girls. It's just a scary and interesting and like one of the comments the girls made was like, I, I need the phone so I don't feel awkward in social situations. So I can pretend to be busy on the phone so I don't have to do this. And you know, right, right. some of the stuff enables us <laughs> in yeah, ways yeah, that we don't yeah. necessarily need to be enabled, especially from a young age and we're building skills and stuff like that. It's just it's such a, an interesting topic. If any of you have the opportunity to see that film in your community, yeah. check it out. <laughs> well, here's my uh, contact information. That's my website, enrich.consulting. Um, also you can follow me on Twitter at Richard Cash. Uh, as well as my Facebook page is just Enrich Educational Consulting is on Facebook. Um, there are my books. Again, you can also, uh, there's that that uh, diff gift is the code. You have to order it through Free Spirit. Um, you can't go through Amazon with that code because they will not honor it. Uh, but you can get it through Free Spirit Publishing, www.freespirit.com. Uh, and if there is a, District that's interested in purchasing uh, like numerous copies of a number of copies, just email me and go through my website because I can get you a bulk order price that's much better than just individual uh, book price. So you're welcome to contact me through enrich.consulting. Awesome. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate yeah. it. It was great. Um, I was looking for last minute questions, but I think that um, I think that people are, are good and have learned a lot. And so um, thank you again. Good. All yeah. right. Thank you very much. Great. Good to meet oh. you guys. Yeah. And I want to point out to our viewers, too. So I think our next podcast, um, our next two podcasts are devoted to CHC theory. Um March 4th, um, we've got Dr. Canavez talking about CHC, and then March 18th, um, Dr. McGrew talking about CHC theory. And I think we're going to see some um, alternative viewpoints, um, but Dr. McGrew, I know, is going to give us kind of the updates on CHC. And um, I think that Dr. Canavez is planning on talking some of his research that might run co contrary to CHC. So I think the next two are going to be um, extra interesting. Um, so please tune in. But thank you again, Dr. Cash. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you, thank Dr. You. Cash. Right, yeah, take care. Thanks. Take care.